Recently, we completed a, a series on the book of Samuel. Samuel is one book divided in two parts, imaginatively called One Samuel and Two Samuel. We began part one of that series back in February of 2019, and then by the end of that year, we finished it. We took a break, went through the Gospel of John, and then July 31st in 2022, we began part two, Second Samuel. Well, you heard earlier, there'll be various uh, pastors speaking the next three weeks, so it makes a contiguous next series difficult. So I thought we could go back whenever we have an occasion and look at some key characters from the story of Samuel. I think that's the way to do it. Having done the weighty exposition of the book, now we can responsibly go back and think about some characters in the book. Today I want to start with the the character whose name is on the book. I want us to look at the life of Samuel, the prophet. We're going to work backwards and turn to a number of texts, but would you please start by turning to the book of Hebrews, in the second part of the Christian Bible, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. As you're locating Hebrews 11, outside of the books of Samuel and Chronicles, the biblical writers record Samuel's life and ministry five times. We'll hit on each of those this morning. Once in Psalm 99 and Jeremiah 15, twice in the book of Acts, chapter 3 and 13, and then we'll see here in chapter Hebrews 11. So Psalm 99 and Jeremiah 15, Acts 3 and Acts 13, and then Hebrews 11. Now, each of these references gives us a divine interpretation, a divine window to see the importance of Samuel's life. In a moment, we're going to look at the last of those five references outside of Samuel and Chronicles. So, but start with by looking at the very end of Hebrews 10. Throughout this sermon of Hebrews, the preacher's admonishing his hearers not to drift away from Christ. He's saying, don't let go of Jesus because Jesus is better than everything else. Now, recently, my two oldest children and I had the chance to spend some time, some personal time, dear precious time, with a godly pastor and, and writer who many of you would know. It was such a kindness that this brother took time for a personal visit with me and my two kids. And near the end of our brief visit, I pointed to Catherine and Carson and said, now, what would you say to pastor's kids? And his face lit up and he said to my kids, it can be hard sometimes to see what happens in a church or what can happen to your dad. But then his eyes widened real big and his voice intensified and a smile stretched across his face like a sunrise. And he said to my kids, it can be hard to see what happens at a church or happens to your dad as a pastor. But then he said, but don't walk away like this from Jesus, because Jesus is not the problem. Go to another church if you need to. When you get older, that's fine. And then he said again, but don't walk away from Jesus. He's not the problem. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying again and again. Don't walk away from Jesus. He's not the problem. What a moment that was for the three of us as that godly man admonished us. And that's what the preacher of Hebrews is saying. So we have one of these admonishments at the end of Hebrews 10. End of Hebrews 10, verses 35 and 36. Here's here's an admonition from this preacher. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Now, don't you feel like that sometimes? Don't throw away your confidence because it has a great reward at the end of it. But now you have need of endurance 
so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive the reward that's promised. And after those words comes an entire chapter of men and women in Hebrews 11 who endured all kinds of circumstances from infertility and famine to floods and fires and pharaohs. And not one of them walked away from Jesus. So in the words of Hebrews 10.35, don't cast away your confidence either. Instead, Hebrews 12 By faith, 11, they all endured trusting in the person and promises of God. For anyone who comes to God must believe that he is. That's his person. And that he rewards those who diligently seek him. That's his promise. And the lives of these men and women that face countless things that beat down upon their souls illustrate what every one of us must do. What is that? You need to learn to lay aside the weight of unbelief in your life and run the race by looking unto Jesus, the beginner and ender of your faith. And guess who's mentioned in this chapter as an example to steal our faith and deepen our resolve and trust in God and his promises. Look down at verse 32. Here are some people who didn't cast away their confidence, but looked by faith to win the prize. Hebrews 11:32. I'm running out of time. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and now say it with me, and Samuel and the prophets. Why are you going to tell us about these people? What did they do? Verse 33. They, through faith, conquered kingdoms and enforced justice and obtained promises, and they stopped the mouths of lions And they quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. And some women received their dead back by resurrection. And you know what? Verse 38 says, these the kinds of men and women, verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. Hebrews 11 then is like an Arlington National Cemetery of Faith meant not only to fill you with gratitude, but to encourage you, to fill you with resolve, to look away to Jesus and to fight with faith and valor in Christ because of Christ. And one of those characters, time would fail me to tell you about Samuel. Now, I think that kind of line gives us warrant for looking at Samuel's life so long as we look at Samuel's life in a way that helps us live by faith in Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Because when he says, time would fail for me to tell you of Samuel, he means that you should love God with your mind and explore and think how Samuel's life tells you to endure by trusting the promises of God. That's what he means you to do. So... Hebrews 11 is giving us an exegetical warrant if we responsibly look at people in the Bible to see how they can help us treasure God above everything else and not walk away. Because Jesus is not the problem. He's everything. And I'm not making that little bit up that Samuel stands as a witness admonishing you not to walk away from God, but trust him because he loves you. I'm not making that up. Because now let's get ready to look at Samuel's life. Go back to 1 Samuel 12. Turn all the way back. 1 Samuel 12. This is Samuel's goodbye address. 
After a life of faithfulness, of leading and loving God's people, at the end of this man's ministry as an old man with gray hair, Israel doesn't throw Samuel a golden anniversary party. Instead, they give him, a, instead they, they fire him. And now he's not standing up saying, thank you, I thank you, thank you. You just fired Samuel, and now you're going to hear Samuel's words at his own firing party, if firing is a party that you have. And just as David's sin in 2 Samuel 11 unleashed an avalanche of consequences for the rest of 2 Samuel, so when God's people reject God and His prophet in this chapter, they're going to unleash an avalanche of consequences that are symbolized by one man, the monster who is Saul, who tries to kill everybody. So, here's what he says. He's going to speak. And he's going to speak so tenderly to a people who have rejected him. Only, verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. That, in a sense, is the witness of Samuel's life to us telling you by faith you need to consider the great things he's done for you so that you would continue to fear him and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. The people rejected him utterly, yet Samuel's last admonition to them is not to walk away from God. You might reject me, but don't reject God. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart, considering what great things he's done for you. Now, Centuries later, you see, a prophet greater than Samuel would love his own people tenderly and they would reject him. Only they didn't fire him. They nailed him to the cross. These farewell words of Samuel give us a glimpse of Jesus, not the prophet rejected, the prophet crucified, that he came into his own and his own received him not. Samuel's life bears witness to the Christ who would come after him. Well, With that in mind, now I want to trace some high points in Samuel's life. And here's where we're going to go. We're going to see Samuel, a prayed-for prophet who speaks God's word. We're going to see Samuel, an interceding prophet. We're going to see Samuel, a kingmaker. We're going to see a prophet, a priest, and not a king, but a kingmaker. That's where we're going. All right? There's some mental railroad tracks for you. Would you turn to 1 Samuel 1? I want us to see first Samuel as the prayed-for prophet who speaks God's word Faithfully, the prayed for prophet who speaks God's word faithfully. Now, this story opens in the dark days of the judges when there's no king in Israel. And when the story of Samuel ends, God is going to provide the greatest king Israel has ever seen through whom comes the savior of the world. So in many respects, this story of Samuel that we've looked at, the reason it feels so epic and cosmic is because it is because the story of Samuel is how God provided a king to deliver his people from their enemies and save people of the world from their sins. That's how massive the story is. That's how it opens and that's how it closes. But when the story opens, there is no king. Everybody's doing right in his own eyes. So the book opens in darkness and barrenness of the days of the judges. And the spiritual darkness of the day is reflected in the woes of a woman named Hannah. 
Hannah's name comes from a form of the word meaning grace and favor. But it seems like this woman whose name means favor has received no favor at all. In fact, you're in chapter one. Look at verse five. This lady is unable to have children. But according to verse five, who is behind Hannah's inability to have children? What does it say? The Lord had closed her womb. The end of verse six. Who do we read once more? The Lord had closed her womb. So as just note this, as the book of Samuel ends, we saw God's sovereignty. Now it's opening with a clear note of God's sovereignty. He's ruling and reigning over the darkness and the exaltation. But now why had the Lord chosen to close the womb of this woman named Hannah? You know why he did it? Because God was being mean and he hated her. No. But now you think in your own life, that seems to be among the first or only response we have when hard providences come into our life. But it's short-sighted and reveals more about us than God because blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God must be the interpreter and one day He will make it plain. And we're not the only ones who think that way because there's another lady in this opening chapter who has that very perspective against Hannah that God closed her room because you did something wrong or God's mad at you. Hannah's husband is named Elkanah and she and he's got two wives. Hannah is one and Penina is the other. And Penina takes the view that many people take today and she began to provoke her grievously to irritate her because I know the Lord closed your womb. You must have done something to deserve this. And now God's being mean to you. He's getting you back. But but Hannah's barrenness was not because of her sin or somebody else's sin. Hannah's closed womb, like the man born blind, was brought about so that the works of God might be displayed through her. Hannah does the best thing anybody can do in the darkness. She prayed. She doesn't just pray one time during the week. Hannah is a virtuous woman of faith who year by year prays, especially when they go up to the temple and she prayed. And for years she prays. And then one day a priest named Eli sees her praying. Only at first he doesn't think Hannah's praying. He thinks she's had too much to drink and there's a drunk woman praying at the temple. Because from the distance, all he can see is her mouth moving. But we're told like this in verse 10, but she was deeply distressed praying to the Lord. And her soul was in agony. And Hannah's prayer is not simply to have a child, but she's praying that God would give her a son through whom she could turn back and dedicate to the Lord for a life of service. She's not just saying, give me a child, but Lord, would you give me a son whom you would use in your service? It's a remarkably devout unselfish prayer. Can I put it that way? It would be like praying today. Lord, give me a son and then make him a missionary so that I'll rarely see him again. That's what she's praying. She's not simply praying for her glory, but for God's glory. Sometimes we don't get what we ask for, James says, because we ask a misc or we ask arising from our own displaced desires. But that's not Hannah. She wanted to be a mother, but as glorious as that is, she wanted something even more. She wanted God to give her a son who could be a weapon in the hand of God, a son for God's service. And then it happens. Look at chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. should bring tears to your eyes or a smile to your heart. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered 
her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and she bore a son and she called his name Samuel because she wanted everybody to know I asked for him from the Lord. So Samuel is a prayed for prophet. Hannah's barrenness is used by God's gracious, mysterious plans after all. Because through this barren woman, God is going to give a prophet, a boy named Samuel. The people have been without a prophet by and large since Moses. Joshua was more of a military leader, not called a prophet. They haven't had a prophet since Moses. But now God is going to supernaturally provide a second prophet through the prayers of a woman who wants to be a mom and who wants her son to be, in a sense, a pastor for the glory of God. Now, we may come back and do a message on Hannah later. But for now, can I note in passing that one of the most important roles, I didn't say only, but one of the most important roles women often play in the Bible is being a mother. There is a misguided, well-intentioned, but I don't think it's good overall, a theological movement at play today that says God doesn't expect women to have children today, but he wants them to focus on the Great Commission and disciple-making at the exclusion of this. That statement, among other things, overlooks one of, I didn't say only, I said one of the primary roles God gives to women in carrying out the Great Commission. What is that? Having children and being a mom. That's exactly how we're told God designed women before the fall and he gives them this vital to role after the fall. That one of the primary roles God gives to women in the Great Commission, a unique role in which he empowers them intellectually and emotionally and physically is to have children and be a mom. And it's not simply a biological design. In fact, it works the other way. It's firstly a deeply theological design that God has written into the female DNA that makes a woman like Hannah weep when she can't have children. It's part of how she's made. It's how God made women gloriously. It's something unique, something only women can do. And in Genesis, we are told the unique role that women will play and reversing the curse of sin will be through a woman giving birth. God's going to save the world through something only women are strong enough to do. Having children. They're uniquely created. Gifted physically and emotionally for children. And First Timothy 2, re- reflecting on the unique role that women have, after saying this role is, is reserved for qualified men, says here's the unique role that women have in advancing the re- curse reversing is through childbearing. Thus Hannah, like the mother of Jesus Christ, played her most important role acting exactly in accord with how God made her as a woman. Don't diminish what it means to be a woman acting in accord with womanhood and don't diminish the importance of motherhood to redemption in the Great Commission. That's Hannah, this godly mother who prayed in the darkness, a darkness that mirrored the nations. God gave a prophet to his people through a woman who wanted nothing more to be a mom for the glory of God and the Lord remembered her But we said Samuel was a prayed for prophet who speaks God's word faithfully. That's where we need to go next, because remember, Hannah wanted to dedicate her son to the Lord. And from a youth, Samuel is going to serve under Eli, the priest at the temple. So now flip over to to first Samuel three. What's the role Samuel is about to play? 
First Samuel three, verse one. Now, the boy Samuel, this boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So as Samuel opens, not only is there no king in Israel, there's no one to speak God's word or more precisely, God is not speaking often or directly. But notice this in a day when God's speaking is rare. Nine times reference is now made to God's calling in this chapter. Look at verses eight and nine when it comes to a climactic point. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. And Eli perceived the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you should say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. See that word speak in verse nine. And it's also in verse 10. Speak. That's the same word translated as word in verse one. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. To make it consistent, so you can see the similarity, you could say the speech of the Lord was rare, but now in verses 9 and 10, here comes this plea, speak, Lord, speak, Lord. You see what's happening. According to verse, verse, verse 1, God's speaking word has been rare, but now all of a sudden, God is breaking the silence and he's speaking again. And he breaks the silence not to Eli the priest. He breaks the silence to a boy named Samuel. God used a barren woman, and now he's using a boy. God loves to use weak things to confound the wise. And what does God want this boy, Samuel, to do? God's about to do something he hasn't done in a long time. He's going to entrust his word to this boy, Samuel, and he expects Samuel to declare his word when the time comes. Samuel is the prayed-for prophet who speaks God's word faithfully. And here's my argument, that since this chapter captures Samuel's initial call, that what we're seeing is thereby indicative of Samuel's entire life after this. Because God's initial call of prophets in the Bible almost always includes what he's calling them to do and the reason why he's calling them to do it. So this initial call in chapter 3 is characterizing the ministry Samuel's going to have. And what is it? He's to speak God's word faithfully. What a gift then Samuel is to God's people. He's giving him a prophet who would speak God's word in a day when my word is rare. God loves his people. How do you know? Because he gave them a prayed for prophet who would now speak God's word faithfully. That's how Paul describes Samuel. In Acts 14, Paul's preaching a sermon and he's looking back over Israel's history and God's redemption. And Paul makes this comment highlighting God's grace to his people, Acts 13, 20. Now, all of that took about 450 years. But after that, he gave them saviors and judges until Samuel, the prophet, he gave to. You see the you see the, the blessing, the grace of God's gift to them through Samuel. We don't have we don't have prophets today like that. And if you do, they're not a prophet who get this word from God and give it to you. We do have prophets who declare God's word that he's already revealed in the inscripturated pages of the Bible. 
And we're about to see how rare and precious it is to get a prophet, a pastor who declares God's word without altering it, no matter the audience or the cultural expectations. Preach the word, Paul says to Timothy. Be ready to preach in season when they want to hear it and out of season when they don't want to hear it. I want you to reprove and rebuke and exhort because a time's coming when nobody will endure sound teaching. First, second, Timothy four, one to three. Now, what do you suppose the kind of sound teaching there is in our cultural moment that even professing Christians don't want to endure? What are preachers tempted in our day to adjust about God's word? What a blessing to get a prophet like Samuel who's going to speak God's word, the unadjusted word. Amos 8 says God judged his people not with a famine of food, but he judged them with a famine. Amos 8, 11, I'm giving you a famine from hearing my words. Now, listen, beloved, some of us are in a self-imposed famine of God's word because we read it so little. That's not a cheap shot. I'm just admonishing you to think, are you, are, are you dieting on God's word? Never time for an intermittent fast with God's word. But you do that often enough or you disobey regularly even the smallest command. And Amos 8, 11, God will send a famine of his word into your life, meaning you won't be able to understand anything you read for a time. What a gift of grace Samuel is. Through a barren woman, God broke his silence through a boy who he now calls to speak his word. But as soon as God calls Samuel, he's going to see how difficult it is to speak God's word faithfully. It's not as easy as it looks. We need a prayed for prophet who will speak God's word faithfully. Now add this with courage. Samuel is a prayed for prophet who's going to speak God's word faithfully with courage. Why do I say Samuel spoke God's word with courage? Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. And remember that since Samuel's initial calling, this is indicative of his entire life. So his role is not only to speak the word, but he's calling Samuel to carry out this prophetic assignment with this cardinal virtue of courage. So look at verse 10. What does God speak to Samuel to break his silence? And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak or word. For your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears, everyone hears it will tingle. I'm saying, good, there's going to be revival breaking out. Pick me to say that. No, 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 no. On the day, I will fulfill it against Eli. All that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that Eli knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain his boys. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house should not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now, how would you characterize this first word that God speaks after silence? Comfort or condemnation? Well, look at how the word affects Samuel in verse 15. And Samuel lay until morning. He didn't have any melatonin, and if he did, it didn't work. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. 
And the tension in the story keeps building because now what will Samuel do with this word from the Lord that's broken the silence? Verse 16, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here am I. And Eli said, what is it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And now we reach the point of highest tension in the story. Why? The word's been rare. God breaks his silence and gives a word, but it's a word of judgment against Eli, Israel's priest, and Samuel's dear mentor. So now what will Samuel do with God's word now? You know what Samuel needs to follow through with this message? He needs courage. Verse 18, the tension resolves. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. That's a faithful prophet to speak God's word and not add to it or take away from it. That's also courage to speak God's word in his context. A boy telling the high priest, Eli, you are about to be judged. And the words of Hebrews 11, we could say it like this. By faith, by faith, Samuel spoke the word of the Lord with courage as a young man when he announced judgment on Eli, Israel's priest. Oh, for believers in our day who by faith in his word will declare the word of God faithfully and with courage. Courage appears to be a fading virtue in our culture. And courage is not doing what movers of the world will honor you for doing. Culture is not advocating for what culture already views as acceptable, whether it's right or wrong. We're in October, and if Hallmark and society can have its causes and cards and ribbons of the month, then you should think of October as Reformation Heritage Month, and the ribbon should be the mallet of a German monk. We're going to have a Reformation speaker at the end of the month to remind us of the gospel. Well, listen to these words attributed to Martin Luther related to the need of courage in any given cultural context. If I profess with the loudest and clearest exposition every portion of God's word, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all battlefields besides the one where the attack is, is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Luther says, it's not courage to speak about everything while avoiding the very point in which God and his word is under attack. It's not courage, however boldly you think you're professing Christ. Learn what Learn Samuel-like courage. What does that mean for you? Currently, it seems to be a, the, the cardinal virtue of our culture. The, I said cardinal seems to be something like empathy. It's not just a virtue, but a virtue of all virtues. And most likely, it's another indication that our moment, Philip Reed saw it coming in 1960, that our therapeutic world prizes personal experiences and emotions as inerrant guides to truth. 
So it's not only a virtue, it's a cardinal virtue by which we can judge everything else. The New Yorker in 2021 even wrote how writers like Brene Brown have built a work on what they call, quote, an empire of emotion. This is not just an aspect of truth, but an empire of it. But empathy alone as a cardinal virtue is an unreliable guide to ethics and truth. Empathy in part may be what led Adam to keep quiet when his wife took the fruit and he said nothing. Empathy is what led Saul to spare people in the face of God's command. Empathy is why we tend to over-sympathize with Saul when we read in the story of Samuel. Alone, it's alone, it's unreliable. Do you emphasize with the man who wants to find fulfillment and work or with the wife who's being neglected because of her husband's work? Whose happiness is more important? Do you emphasize with the woman who has an unplanned pregnancy or with the baby in the womb? Do you see? Empathy alone would have kept Samuel from saying all that God wanted to say to his mentor, Eli. It may have its place, but it's not as a cardinal virtue. What we are in need of is virtues arranged in the right order, put in the right place, tethered to the right source. That's what C.S. Lewis says in screw tape letters. I know you remember it. Similar to what Luther's call for contextual courage, Lewis made the point in screw tape letters, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, the highest reality. The most important virtue, Lewis says we need, is courage, a chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste and honest only on condition. Pilate was merciful until it became risky. Now, different contents and seasons call for different approaches to different aspects of culture. But using the schema of Richard Niebuhr, who describes the options for the way Christians stand to culture, we're waking up in a world where it might be the most courageous approach is not Christ transforming culture, not Christ of culture, not Christ above culture. But what may be needed in various moments now, in the words of Niebuhr, is a courageous Christ against culture. Christ against culture doesn't mean fear and withdrawal, but courage in advance. Samuel's first test as a prophet is not only to say what God said, but to speak it without flinching with courage to a person he was tempted to show nothing but empathy for. Now, friend, this happens whenever you have a friend in a bad spot And we feel badly for that friend and we should feel badly for them. But we feel so badly for that friend that we don't call them to obey clear commands of God's word. That's how it can work. Samuel is empathetic. That's why he's afraid and awake all night. He knows what it'll mean. He feels badly for Eli. He knows the boys. He knows the family. But more than empathetic, Samuel knows he must be obedient and have the courage to say the most loving thing. The truth. Samuel has to speak God's word faithfully and with courage. He can't flinch at this point. Here is Samuel, the prayed for prophet who speaks God's word with faithfulness and with courage. And that kind of courage he shows here in 1 Samuel 3 is going to characterize his entire ministry. He's going to announce God's judgment on Israel in chapter 8 when they reject God as their king in favor of an earthly king. Samuel's going to have to speak God's word courageously before King Saul and then announce to King Saul when he fails to obey. 
And you, you know when that happens? Samuel is called to speak God's judgment on a full battlefield. You don't think there's peer pressure in front of the king, surrounded by warriors. You don't think that's peer pressure to soften God's word? What kind of peer pressure? The whole nation's looking at you and you're in front of the king. What will you do with your God's word now? The same thing he did in chapter 3. He's going to show you humility by saying only what God's word says with courage. He speaks it before him. And even after his death and a scene we don't fully get in 1 Samuel 28, Samuel is still a faithful prophet who's speaking God's word courageously to Saul. And Samuel tells Saul in 1 Samuel 28, you don't need a new word from me. You need to go back to the old word that I gave you in 1 Samuel 15. You need an old word from this now dead prophet that you, I don't, how did I get here? But I'm telling you, you go back. That's Samuel, a prayed for prophet who will speak God's word with faithfulness and courage by faith. Samuel spoke the word of God with courage as a boy when he announced judgment on Eli and Israel and the king. He's a prayed for prophet who speaks God's word faithfully and with courage. Now, two more things. The last thing is just a page and a half of my notes. But the second thing, I'm just giving you some mental time to pace yourself. Here's the next big category. Samuel's not only a prayed for prophet. Samuel is a praying prophet who intercedes for God's mercy. At times, Samuel not only functions as a prophet who stands between God and man, but he also functions as a priest who stands between men and God. And Samuel not only speaks God's word in behalf of God, he's going to intercede to God on behalf of the people. Turn to 1 Samuel 7. 1 Samuel 7. We overlook this. We tried to show this in the prayer service that Samuel is one of the greatest Old Testament examples of intercession for God's mercy. God's people have been sinning greatly and they come to Samuel because they know Samuel is going to tell them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And you hopefully you have somebody in your life like that. Read first Samuel seven verses three to five. I want you to watch what Samuel, the courageous prophet, also has in him to do. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, for he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. Now look at verse nine. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Praise the Lord for a prophet who's acting like a priest to intercede for these people who need mercy. And remember, beloved, that's how we should view. Samuel's not just a prophet. He's acting like a priest. Remember Psalm 99.6? Let me put it into the sermonic record now. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. Oh, Lord God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God. So he's a praying prophet who acts as a priest, interceding for God's mercy on his people. You know, in the book of Jeremiah, God is describing looming judgment coming on God's people. Then the Lord says this in Jeremiah 15, 1. 
you people are at such a bad spot. Listen to how the Lord himself views Samuel. The Lord said to me, Jeremiah, though Moses and Samuel stood before me for these people, my heart would not turn away from judging these people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. You see how God himself viewed his servant Samuel, not simply as a courageous prophet, but as an interceding priest who God heard him interceding for the people. And this aspect of Samuel, as somebody who intercedes for mercy, is the last thing we hear from Samuel. Would you go back now to 1 Samuel 12? We're near the end of his life, at least in this book. 1 Samuel 12, in verse 2, he actually says, I've walked before you from my youth, 1 Samuel 3. And until this day, now I am a gray hair in old age. But instead of honoring this courageous prophet who spoke God's word clearly to them over decades and often acted as a priest interceding for them, Israel fires Samuel. They fire him for his faithfulness. It's not the first time people have treated a faithful minister in this way. My wedding anniversary is June 22nd. My wife hates to have all these historic dates attached with a number of things. You know what else happened on June 22nd? The most important thing is my marriage. Far above that, ten times over. A wife is the best gift God's given to me outside of Christ. June 22nd, 1750, something happened that I wasn't there in. But it's kind of like this passage. You know, John, Jonathan Edwards' birthday was this week. You had a quote from him on the front of your order of worship. Well, on June 22nd, 1750, Jonathan Edwards' church in Northampton, Massachusetts, voted him out as their pastor. He had served 21 years as a lead pastor, 24 years total, and had seen two great awakenings. And after 24 years, they voted him out. Of the 230 men who voted, only 23 stood in his favor. 90% of this church that he served for, for 24 years said, no, thank you. At least Edwards had 23 men. Samuel appears to have nobody. That's the context of this. I mean, let me help you climb into the chapter even more because I want you to, I want you to kind of sense what's happening to Samuel to magnify all the more his intercession. Somebody sent me an article this week called You Probably Have a Good Pastor. It describes the kind of things happening to Samuel in chapter 8 and verse 11. They still happen. The author writes, here's a part of it. It seems like everywhere you turn, there are discussions being had about bad pastors, multiplied books and podcasts and articles, documentaries airing on streaming services like Netflix and Hulu pop up every other week or so. And of course, there are bad pastors. They should be refused the responsibility of leadership among God's beloved flock and held to account. But has the focus on bad pastors been overdone? Has the proliferation of what some people have dubbed scandal porn produced a skewed view of reality? Certainly, I expect the world to cast a negative light as possible upon Christian pastors. When the project is taken up with equal zeal by Christians, I believe we have a reason to be troubled. While no one actually denies there are bad pastors, almost no one is discussing the fact there are bad churches. Where are the documentaries and podcasts discussing pastor-destroying churches? There's a precious little discussion about the fact there's hardly a pastor out there who's not been wounded, slandered, bullied, run off by a church or a bad associate pastor or ungodly church members. Now imagine the complexity of being called to be a pastor where your job is to lead a congregation of volunteers who pay your salary, men and women who have competing expectations of you who themselves are sinners. Imagine being in a position of leadership where it's absolutely essential to be liked by those you're called to teach, lead, correct, and at times rebuke. 
Imagine maintaining emotional and spiritual health when every day you're aware that you're letting somebody else down, failing to live up to some myriad and at times conflicting expectations in the midst of spiritual warfare. Add to that all too common experience that pastors have of being actively undermined, slandered by someone who voted against his call, unyielding criticism from an unyielding church member. And if young men called by God knew what they're likely to be treated in at least one church they serve, I'm quite sure that very few would be willing to serve. Douglas Kelly in his wonderful little book, The New Life in a Wasteland on Second Corinthians, writes, wherever there's a faithful ministry in today's culture, like Samuel's, we could say it's very likely that those who begin feeling the authority of God's word coming to them through the preached word or the counsel from God's word will first of all start to attack the minister. People feel more free than ever to give the fullest reign of the dislike and the criticisms to a leadership who's just acting from God's word. Now, I share that with you to say that's kind of what's happening to Samuel. The point is that that's where Samuel is after years of faithful service. How do you think Samuel's going to respond? And in the middle of it all, it dawns on Israel what they've just done. It's an oh crud moment. Look in verse 19 of chapter 12. Pray for your servants to the Lord that we may not die for what we have done. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask ourselves for a king. And then how do you... I mean, the next part is Samuel calls down fire from heaven and imprecations on the people who rejected him like Edwards or like this article... I shared Edwards and that article to give you a sense of what's going on in Samuel's emotional life so that you can have proper empathy for Samuel. But notice what he does. Verse 23. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. And doesn't this too, beloved, doesn't this ending of Samuel's life, doesn't this take you to Christ, the greatest prophet and priest? That even from the cross, Christ interceded for those who rejected him. Even now, we're told that Christ ever lives to make intercession for people like you and me. Christ loves to intercede for Emmanuel Bible Church. And don't look at Samuel, look through him, look through Samuel and see the courage of Christ who made a good confession before Pilate. Look through Samuel and see Jesus obedient to God's word, even the point of death. Jesus is God's final word in the flesh. You see, Samuel is the prayed for prophet who speaks God's word with faithfulness and courage, whose life points to Christ, who does in fullness what Samuel did in part. And as Samuel prays and intercedes for mercy, he points to Christ, for of Christ, our great high priest, Christians, at least for the last 300 years or so, have taken up the words of Charles Wesley and sung of Christ, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers and they strongly plead for me. Condemn him, oh, condemn, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. And don't let that ransomed sinner die. What a gift Samuel is. What an eternal treasure Jesus is. Our prophet, faithful, courage, interceding for us now. 
Here's the last point. I'm going to linger long. Because in the flow, you think I'm going to say, Samuel is a prophet, Samuel is a priest, and Samuel is a king who points to Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. That's good thinking, but it ain't how the story goes. Because Samuel functions as a prophet, he functions as a priest, but the one thing Samuel doesn't do, he doesn't function as a king. In fact, he functions as a king maker. Samuel is John the Baptist of the Old Testament. Samuel, like John the Baptist, served not as the king, but as the king maker, as the king appointer. In Acts 3, Peter preaches a sermon telling people to repent and put their hope in Jesus as God's Messiah. And Peter says that people preached to you a long time ago about Jesus as God's anointed one. And then in Acts 3.24, he says, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him, proclaim the days of Christ the Messiah. That means that Samuel was a kingmaker who anointed and messiahed one who pointed to Jesus himself. After God rejects Saul, God sends Samuel to anoint David as the king over Israel. Samuel anointed David as the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. And in doing so, Paul tells you, Peter tells you, that Samuel is prophetically anointing David's greater son as the final Christ. For through David, the son of David comes. By faith. Samuel lived his life pointing to God's anointed king and a culture that rejected him. We could say that Samuel's life as the great kingmaker can be boiled down to these phrases. Samuel's life as he goes off the scene is this. He must increase, but I must decrease. I am not that light, but I've been sent to you to bear witness to that light. Consider great things he's done. Here are two points for you at the very end. Follow the gaze of Samuel and look away to God's king, the author and finisher of your faith. That's Samuel. Follow the life of Samuel, who by faith, lived a life of courage and faith and interceded in a way that points to Christ alone. His whole life, his gaze pointed to Jesus and the way he lived his life pointed to Jesus. And may God help us by faith to follow Samuel. So fear the Lord and serve him and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. Consider what great things he's done in Christ.